This is tape number one of the series, Thriving in the World. Throughout this series, Dr. Joel Hunter will discuss how we as Christians, being so different from the world, can live in it and actually thrive. The world as we know it is a tough place. Things happening around us and to us, leaving scars that only God can heal. How do we thrive in this world? Even still, how do we make a difference? Dr. Hunter's first message will cover the different ways Christians deal with the world. This is part one of a two-part message. From the New American Standard, Dr. Hunter has chosen the 24th Psalm, verses 1 through 6. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? and who may stand in his holy place. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully, he shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek thy face, even Jacob. And now, let's join Dr. Hunter as he begins his series, Thriving in the World, with the message, Different Ways Christians Deal with the World, Part 1. What a wonderful memory we have of the grace and the sacrifice of Christ. What a wonderful vision we have of the grace that is yet to come. But we live here in the meantime. And the question is, do we experience and count on God's grace today. And how much do we do that? <clears throat> we have just finished a series uh, dealing with the year's theme on adversity. And this sub-series uh, that we just finished was about personal temptation. And how God matures us by allowing us to go through personal temptation. To learn this fact. And it's all summed up in Romans 5:20. If you didn't come to any of the service, sir, uh, the, the services, you can you can get the whole message right here. That where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. God allows us to go through personal temptation so that we will understand that it is not our effort, it is not our self-improvement that can change our lives. It is only the radical power of God's grace that he freely gives us. And I want you to remember the words of Psalm 91:14 that I read for you last week. As God says, because he loves me, therefore I will deliver him. Remember those words, I will deliver him. I will set him securely on high because he has known my name. He will call on me and I will answer him. And I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. How do you mature through personal temptation? You call on God for deliverance. And you count on his grace. But we turn now to another series that will last for the rest of the year. <clears throat> that is another step, a tougher step, in our faith walk. Because we're going to talk about adversity that is more pervasive than just our personal adversity. It is an enemy that not only dwells in our imagination, but in our environment. 
It is a lesson that we not only think about, a temptation we not only strive for from our hearts, but it is a temptation that is taught to us from our culture. Because not only do we need to deal with the personal, inherited, original sin that we got from Adam, but we need to deal with the cumulative effects of that sin in the society in which we live. How do you address the sin and the perversion of that culture in which you live? Let me ask you a question. How many of you know someone personally that you love very deeply, as I do, who began a walk with Christ, who has now because of not only the hunger of their heart, but the influence of the world been drawn away from that walk. How many of you know someone who is not only being drawn away because they have bought into the vanity and the values of the world, but you know someone who still thinks they're loving God, who still thinks that as they reason things out, they're doing the right thing. How many of you can't sleep at night as well because there's someone you know right now who is sowing the seeds of destruction in their life and you can't quit thinking about them? How many of you become more acquainted with your own sin as you, as you try for a response. How to respond to them. And all of those old world messages in religious forms come back to you. The message of control. Well, just yell at them enough. Maybe they'll feel guilty and come back. The message of abandonment. Cut them off. You can't deal with this. Turn them over to Satan. Stop caring. Get on with your life, for crying out loud. The message of helplessness. All you can do is just just sit by and pray for them from time to time. You can't really say anything. There is no real response. How many of you, after having your heart torn apart, Cry out, there's got to be something, some sort of voice that my faith can respond in some sort of helpful, Christ-like way. That's what we need to take a look at. Because we live in a very hostile world, hostile to the things of God. But we also have a very hostile heart that wants to rock back to the things of the flesh in our response. And those make for a lethal combination. What I would like to do in the next few months, but especially in the next few weeks, is lay a foundation for you for what I believe is a godly response. So that you can have a way to address the things of the world. For the next two weeks, I'd like to just lay a foundation in 
what are now classical categories of different ways groups of Christians respond to the world. You will recognize people you know in all of these. You may recognize yourself in one of these or even more. These ways have been uh, borrowed from H. Richard Niebuhr, who wrote a book that is now a classic called Christ and Culture. In 1949, Austin Presbyterian Theological Seminary, H. Richard Niebuhr delivered a lecture that worked out five typologies of how Christians try to respond to the world, the mentality they have while they respond to the world. And I would like to walk through those with you, giving both the strengths and the weaknesses of each one. And two weeks from today, I would like to propose to you a way that people of Northland can respond to the world, a way that someday I would like to be, be able to live up to. So if you can get over having to have it all wrapped up in 20 minutes and stick with me for a while, let me give you what is a mini-seminary uh, education here because this book is taught in practically every accredited seminary in, in the nation. I mean, this is, this is what you hear when you go to seminary. It is very insightful and very helpful. Let me begin with a scripture text that puts everything into a context. Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. He has founded, he has established. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully, he shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek thy faith, face, even Jacob. This is the generation of those who seek him. I hope this is the generation of those who seek him. Let me first start out with a most familiar group. You may have grown up with people like this. You may still know a few. You may be one. This is the camp that Niebuhr would call Christ against culture. Their basic thesis is that when you accept Christ, you pass from a child of darkness into a child of light. And the rest of the time would be better if you could avoid the contamination of the world because Satan reigns out there while God reigns in here. Some of the foundational scriptures, and all of these positions have their, their favorite scriptures. Some of the favorite scriptures are these. 1 John 2.15 Do not love the world nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father <coughs> is not in him. <clears throat> For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Even more to the point is James chapter 4, verse 4. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. 
And lastly, 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 17. This is read in our men's group this, uh, uh, this week. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Another name for Satan. Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will walk, I will dwell in them, in them, and walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. Now that's strong medicine, isn't it? Let me tell you how valuable this is, but also how the church cannot adopt this position only because of its weak theology. First of all, let me give you a few touchstone points as we go along. There have always been Christians in the Orthodox Church that have been of a prophetic spirit. And they have been so valuable to the Orthodox Church. You in this congregation who have the spirit of prophecy, who value truth far more than um, manners, far more than feelings, the church needs you. Don't ever go away from the church because the church needs you like David needed Jonathan. There have also been groups that have pulled away um, the monastic movement in the Roman Catholic Church where people who wanted to go away from all forms of culture and just live cloistered life so that they could have a vertical relationship with God. Those in our country that you may be familiar with, those of a pietistic movement, the Mennonites, uh, eschew the things of the world. Amish, that's one that you probably recognize Uh, People who will not only participate in the contaminating cultural ways, but won't even participate in the technology, because that also will have its contaminating effect. Those of you who who grew up in the holiness movement, who grew up uh, uh, conservative uh, Methodist or, or Nazarene, you know, didn't wear jewelry, didn't wear makeup, didn't go to movies, didn't play cards. Those of you who are fundamentalist Baptists, who know the danger of adopting the ways of the world. All of you will be familiar with what I'm about to say. The theology of a Christ-against-culture person basically says that we should be very suspicious of any contact with the world. They are suspicious of education. For they would say with Tertullian, what has Athens to do with Jerusalem? In other words, what can the world teach us? We've got what we need right here. As a matter of fact, I don't like people going to seminary because everybody that does that, I've always seen that their faith is damaged. They think too much. They get to knowing more than, they, than the Word and somehow they decrease in their effectiveness of the Word of God. These people can also be so um, suspicious of the world that they can be on a spectrum all the way from very mild form of just not wanting to be with worlds, i.e., you know, it's kind of like a toad. Uh, if you handle it enough, you're going to get warts, so kind of stay away from it. 
all the way over to the Tex-Mars conspiratorial theories. You know, they're, they're out to get us. And there's a huge world conspiracy, and, and we're done for. And they just keep praying harder and harder for the Lord to come again, you know? Why? Because God is a God of history of the future and of the past, but not of the present. God is a God who wants either to bring back the past or to bring in the future, but He's not Lord right now. Because the whole world's too messed up for Him to be Lord. You see, there is, and you've probably run into folks like this in your background, and I love these folks, because they're flat out for God. They call for radical commitment and purity. But you've probably seen several folks in your background that were very suspicious of stuff that you were into. I remember calling, I started out in the Methodist church, and I remember calling a, a country preacher in to meet with our UMYF group, youth group. And uh, we had just gone to see some Disney movie that week. That's when, before Disney got into the PG and all, and, uh, you know, Escalade. Very, and he said, you went where? We went to a movie as a youth group. You did what? And I watched his eyes get narrow. What else have you done? And I thought, whoa, I'm not going to win in this. I've got to change the subject quick. See, there was a deepening suspicion that we were into the things of the world. And therefore, we were going to be taken down by the ways of the world. Well, you know what? There is a lot of value in being suspicious about the things of the world. Because, as I said at the beginning of this, you and I both know folks who have begun to buy into the value systems of the world and the philosophies and the teachings of the world and have begun to interpret Scripture according to what they learn in the culture. And so it becomes a very perverted interpretation of, Christian, of Scripture. And they are fooled into thinking that they're following Christ when they are turning their back on Christ. However, let me tell you why this church can't be a Christ against culture church. There are inherent weaknesses that are also of the world. First of all, the theology is wrong. The scripture text says God created the whole world. He didn't divide it up. God is not sovereign over the church but helpless in the world, the whole world is God's. Now out there, Satan certainly runs rampant. And out there, he certainly has influence. But you cannot divide the sacred and the secular. God is out there, and guess what? Satan is still in here. There is no one who is without sin. The Bible says very clearly, if you say you're without sin, you're deceiving yourself. And the truth is not in you. There is no one who does not need to deal with their own temptation. So here's the danger. There are three basic dangers. First of all, if you believe that the world is at fault for your temptation or the temptation of your loved ones, you will be a very angry person. And you will live your basis on, or your life on the wrong basis. Let me tell you a story. I heard, and it's supposedly a true story. Years and years ago, there was a man named Joseph Richardson who was a millionaire in New York. He had a narrow 
strip of property between two buildings, and he wanted to sell that property to those folks. So he went to one uh, uh, of the owners and then another of the building owners, and neither one of them wanted to buy what he had. He got so furious that he decided to make his life a running battle with them, and he built, this is before there are building codes now, he built on that narrow piece of property an old dilapidated house out of old used lumber. That house was only five feet wide. And he moved into that house and lived the rest of his life in that house to spite them so that he could tear down their property values. Church, listen to me. If what you're doing is mainly being mad at the world, you are confining yourself to very narrow quarters. And you're living your life on the wrong basis. You are not to live in revenge. You are not to have a spirit of vengeance. And so therefore, it's important that you're able to espouse the positive things of the gospel without having to come up with an equal number of negative things about the world. It's able that you it's it's important that you're allowed to love people without being able or without having to hate just as many people as you've loved. Secondly, not only does it give you a spirit of hostility and anger that is not the spirit of Christ, but also if you have a theology that the world is wrong and I'm right there will grow a spirit of arrogance and pride in you. That is an open door for Satan to say, Oh, good, self-righteous. That's one of my favorite ones. Sooner or later you will hear yourself praying in some form. Luke 18, 11, Oh, God, I thank thee that I am not like other men. Don't live on the basis of having a war with the world. You will either be angry or you will be arrogant or both or the third. You will not fulfill some of the function that God put you down here for. You will avoid the very people that need you most. Read it. Luke 10, 31 32. There were people who saw the world as contaminating. And as they were walking down on that road to Jericho, they saw an injured man. And the Bible says there was a priest, but when the priest saw the man, he passed by on the other side. There was a Levite, but when the Levite saw the man, he passed by on the other side. If you think that the people in this world will contaminate you, you will not help the very people who need you most. And you will miss the mission of Christ and the compassion of Christ as well. So let me say, those of you with a prophetic spirit, keep on preaching. Keep on calling us to radical purity. We need that voice in the church. If we do not have that voice, then Romans 13 just becomes a tool of the state. I mean, we, we, there will be no um, uh, difference the salt will lose its saltness. We need your voice. But don't get discouraged if we don't buy wholeheartedly into your theology.
because God has more for us to understand. Let me go to the second one real quickly. The second one is just the opposite. The second one is the Christ of culture. Now, these folks have favorite scriptures also. And their scriptures would be, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Another one would be, Well, where did Christ spend his time when he was down here? Look in Matthew eleven nineteen, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax gatherers and sinners. Where did Jesus hang out? With the Pharisees? Mm-mm. With the lowlifes. They would say, look at the character of the Incarnation. They would look at Romans 13 and says, "There's the structures of this world are identified with God. God ordained them all. Therefore, when you look at the world and the welfare of the world, you're also looking at what God meant to be His welfare. And they make no differentiation. As a matter of fact, they would say, the reason Jesus came down here was to show us how to live. To be, in the words of the commercial, all we can be. To improve us so that we can be better people. They would say there is truth in all religions, but Jesus is the best truth, truth or the highest truth or the culmination of all religions. They would say, and by they, again, here's the touchstone as far as denominational, if you're looking for, for something here, it would be the more liberal elements of the mainline denominations, United Methodists or, or the Presbyterian USA or the, the uh, United Church of Christ. Not the Church of Christ now. The Church of Christ would be with the withdrawal folks. But the United Church of Christ, uh, Congregational Church, Unitarian Universalists would be clear over here on the end. But they would say that the reason God came down or the reason Jesus appeared, they wouldn't count on the divinity of Christ so much because they begin to, to say, well, he's just a man, but he was a good one and he was a good teacher. The reason, though, for all of this is so that we can improve the world and everybody can live together in brotherhood. And so, therefore, what you don't want to do is mention stuff that gives tension to people. People have too much tension as it is. And so you ever, don't ever want to say stuff like sin. Because that makes people uncomfortable. This is, by the way, by the way, um, um, uh, vintage Robert Schuller stuff. I haven't listened to him lately, but in his, in his day, you know, this was his philosophy. You know, this is so that people can improve their lives. Our job is to motivate people so that they will become better. Our job is to translate the gospel, listen to this, into terms that people can understand so that they will grasp it and be motivated to improve their lives and to love more and to do all those things that Jesus said to do. Now let me tell you the value of this position and why the church needs them, but also the radical downside of this position. The value is... We have always needed folks who were interested in translating the gospel into the context of the audience. Not since the, the dynamics of Acts chapter 2, where each man heard the gospel in his own tongue, has there been such a phenomenon. Now, 
Certainly, we still rely on the spirit of Acts 2 because no man can come to the Father but that the Father himself goes out and gets him. Therefore, all conversion is spirit-led. All conversion is what God does. So there isn't anybody who can convert himself. But still, it's very valuable to have people who will say, but I want to explain the gospel in terms that people can grasp in their own life. I want to take the gospel and put it into terms that people can understand in their own context. Becky was reading a a book uh, recently by Michael Crichton. We got interested in him when we read Jurassic Park. And uh, this was a a man who graduated very young age, um, MD from Harvard University, best-selling writer in his early 30s, brilliant man. But he was ready to commit suicide in his early 30s. And his thought was, he'd done it all. What else is there? Well, then he decided, he changed his mind, thought he'd travel. And so this is a book about his travels. This guy is so hungry spiritually, it's incredible. He's searching through everything except Jesus Christ to find the world of the Spirit. And Beck put the book down at one time and said, Hunter, if someone could go to this guy and explain to him in a language that was intellectually palatable, and it was God's Spirit moving, he'd be... But where is God going to lead in his life with somebody that can do this? See the hunger there, the value in that. To be able to explain to people, contextualize the gospel. That's valuable. But let me tell you what you already know. If this position were the story of the church, salt would lose its saltness. Think of the times when you have tried to go to someone who was on a search and tried not to offend them tried not to give them the plain gospel. You just wanted to put it in terms that they could hear you and they wouldn't turn you off. Was there any effect to that? There has been no evidence that there are any more people converted by people who explain it well than there are somebody who gets in your face and says, turn or burn. One side is as effective as the other according to what we can tell. The theological downside is this also. Just as in the first part, there was not a radical enough understanding of the pervasiveness of sin and its stick so in this one also, there's not a radical understanding of the, of the nature and the pervasiveness of sin. They see people as just basically nice but ignorant if, we could only, if they only knew better, they'd do better. Oh, my goodness. I used to be a raving, radical, liberal who thought that I was going to go out and turn the world upside down because I would teach them. And I did my student teaching in an inner city school in Cleveland. Went in there fully expecting that all of those kids just wanted to be nicer people. And they just needed somebody to teach them. Holy cow. I was lucky to come out of there alive. And when I came out, my theology was much more accurate. Not only about 
the radicalness of their sin, but the radicalness of my sin in my reaction. I saw how it really is. If you want to go down to the most high crime ridden area of any place in the nation and say, let me teach you how to be nice, go ahead. But you will come to the place where you understand it's not a matter of ignorance, it's a matter of sin. And also, you will come to the place that you understand that what is needed is a radically transcendent God that impacts anything for anything changes. So, it's very important to take from these folks their desire to share the gospel and to respect people. That's also very important because respect is so important in evangelism. But it's important that we not take this lukewarm, messy, kind of sugary kind of view about people. People mean business. People have agendas. And if you're not acquainted with that, you will be eventually. Now let me again rehearse the whole picture and then I'll, then I'll close this out. This whole picture is that for a while we want to spend some time on formulating a response to the world. Because the world is not neutral. The world is this big, amorphous presence. I think of it as Baby Huey. Did you ever see those Baby Huey cartoons? Big old thing, much bigger than its maturity. And in him it's funny, in them it's not. Because there is an indwelling sin that makes them a hostile presence and a hostile threat to all of us that also calls to the hostile threat that is still within us. So therefore, we need to take an accurate look at the world, but we need not to get mixed up in our own little brands of religiosity and mistake the world for what it is, to think that God has somehow not brought us to the right place in history or he made some mistake, he got to heaven and said, oh, I thought I had my people with me. Oh, whoa, wait a minute, they're still down on earth. Oh, no. It's not a mistake we're down here. It's not a mistake he hadn't come back yet. We are here for a purpose. And we need to see that clearly and accurately. We were talking about a... Or Becky was talking to a good friend of ours who is about to have her first baby. She lives in Boca Raton. Becky gave her a call yesterday and hung up the phone and was laughing. And I said, what's up? You know, she's just going to have it in a couple of days. Well, this particular friend, which is so dear to us, goes to a flat-out charismatic church. I mean flat-out charismatic church. Now, those of you who come from flat-out charismatic churches know what it's like to be pregnant in a charismatic church. Everybody has a word of prophecy for you. Oh, God told me it's going to be a girl. God told me it's going to be a boy. You know, she says she got about 50-50 reading from God so far on whether it's a girl or a boy. <laughs> but one person said something to her that was just so important. She's never forgotten it. She said, you know, I hope that you do not make the mistake I did when I was pregnant. Christy said, what was it? She said, I'll tell you, I also went to a flat-out charismatic church. Only all of them agreed what the prophecy was. All of them came to me and said, got a word from the Lord, 
it's going to be a girl. And so my husband and I just went flat out and did our nursery pinks and frills. Now you know where I'm going with this, don't you? You go on ahead. You don't need to wait on me. <laughs> pinks and frills, got all of our clothes and so on and so forth. And God gave us a beautiful baby boy. Healthy baby boy. And when that baby boy came out, I cried. She said, I've always been ashamed that I could not be grateful that day for what God gave us. A wonderful, healthy baby boy because I was so caught up in my own little religiosity that I couldn't read reality for the gift that it was. We've got a huge challenge ahead of us out there. But make no mistake, God's made no mistake. It's there for a reason, and we're here for a reason. And we need to be able to say, God, we want to impact what you've left us to impact. We don't want to just get all caught up in our own little thing. We don't want to hide. We don't want to be afraid. We want to impact whatever we can and stay faithful to you. Please stand. And let me pray through the benediction. God, even as I speak, let me go back to the very beginning of our Christian walk and say that if there's anybody in here today who does not know you personally, but still stands with the crowd of, I'd just like to live my life a little bit better and learn from God. God, if you have brought them with your spirit to the place of understanding where they realize they can't do that because they won't get better on their own no matter how much they know, no matter how determined they are, if they're ready to make a radical commitment to Jesus Christ, God, let them do that right now. Let him pray that prayer of salvation that says everything. God, I can't pay for my own salvation. There's nothing I can do that deserves it. I need to accept the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. I need to be washed in his blood that all my sins would be forgiven and I would stand before you with imputed righteousness. And God... Come in to my heart and live there and make of my life whatever glorifies you. And with the last part of that prayer, Lord, that's where we all stand. For those with a willing spirit this morning that you are so guiding, let us all pray that prayer.